Good morning. In today's headlines, Congressman Jim Jordan came up short again in his bid to become House Speaker. Meanwhile, one representative says she got death threats after pulling her support for Jordan. Meanwhile, President Biden announced a $100 million aid package to Gaza, which some call a gift to Hamas. Tense scenes at the Capitol yesterday as police arrested more than 300 people protesting Israeli strikes on Hamas targets in the Gaza Strip. New U.S. sanctions address Iranian missile and drone programs and focus on disrupting funding for Hamas terror operations. University campuses have become centers for left-leaning ideologies and anti-Semitic sentiment. We talked to an expert to help shed some light on growing tensions. Is there a link between green energy initiatives and more support for terrorism? One analyst tells us there is, and it has to do with Iran. Here's his solution. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning for me as well. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Thursday, October 19th. And Evelyn, it is understandable that there could be some disagreement as to who would become House Speaker, but death threats are never to be tolerated. No. And Jordan is also strongly condemning that, um, saying that Republicans should just come together. Right. But first, um, top news today. President Biden is back in the U.S. after his trip to Israel. The president expressed some satisfaction with his visit for unblocking humanitarian aid to besieged Gaza. Biden called negotiations blunt. He says Egypt's president has agreed to open the Gaza border crossing to allow 20 trucks with humanitarian aid supplies to cross. The commitment stipulates the convoy meets with U.N. workers once they cross. Here's President Biden on aid going to Gaza. If, the, if Hamas confiscates it or doesn't let it get through or just confiscates it, then it's going to end because we're not going to be sending any humanitarian aid to Hamas if they're going to come be confiscated. That's the commitment that I've made. Countries including the U.S., Canada, France and the U.K. are now warning citizens not to travel to Lebanon. That's due to a significant escalation in skirmishes between Israel and the terrorist group Hezbollah. At least 13 people were reportedly killed along the Israel-Lebanon border since last Saturday. U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak arrived in Israel this morning. He'll meet Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and President Isaac Herzog today. And Netanyahu issued a statement yesterday on U.S. aid to Gaza laying out some conditions. One is that no humanitarian assistance from Israel will be given to Gaza until Israeli hostages are freed. He's also demanding that the Red Cross visits the hostages and works to mobilize broad international support for their release. Israel says it will not stop humanitarian aid from Egypt and President Biden's request. That's as long as it isn't taken by Hamas and only includes food, water and medicine for civilians in southern Gaza or people evacuating there. Israel says any supplies that reach Hamas will be prevented. President Biden says if Hamas interferes with U.S. humanitarian aid for Gaza, it will end. NTD spoke with Israel Defense Forces spokesman Jonathan Conriquez to learn more about the IDF's position. 
The $100 million in humanitarian aid for Gaza announced by the U.S. Wednesday is intended to provide food, water, medical support, and other basic needs to Palestinians displaced or afflicted by the war. IDF spokesperson Jonathan Conricus told NTD he's very skeptical it won't end up with Hamas due to a history of the terrorist group abusing civilian humanitarian aid. Hamas knows no boundaries and it uses everything for its military purposes. Uh, we have said if this aid will go to Hamas, if Hamas will take it like they stole fuel from a UN facility a few days ago and that was reported by the UN, if that happens, we'll destroy it because we are not going to allow sustenance and the enhancement of military capabilities for our enemy. The IDF has continued to present evidence of a failed Islamic Jihad rocket responsible for the hospital blast in Gaza. It says terrorist groups like it and Hamas are firing from densely populated urban areas and other sensitive humanitarian infrastructure like schools, infirmaries, clinics, hospitals and mosques. This is a zoom in of a mosque. And that's a zoom-in of a UNRWA school. The red squares are rocket launches, and you can see the path of the rockets as they're being fired. Zoom-in from above, same area, mosque, school, rocket launch site. See how close? 80 meters and 150 meters. These two sites are sensitive, protected sites. Conrica says the possibility that the explosion could have been related to something being stored by Hamas near or under the hospital cannot be ruled out. Otherwise, it's very difficult to uh, understand how so many people were killed by the remains of one rocket. Uh, but the bottom line is, we fight according to the laws of armed conflict. Our enemy is Hamas, not the civilians, and we will defeat Hamas while trying as much as possible to minimize casualties. Hamas claims to be currently holding nearly 200 hostages. 50 have reportedly been taken by other Palestinian terror groups. The IDF says it's their duty to bring them home and is collecting intelligence and planning to make it happen. We aspire for a short, swift and decisive war with the least amount of casualties in Israel for our troops, but also uh, for civilians suffering in Gaza. They are not our enemy. So the faster and swifter that we can do it, the better. Uh, this could all be, of course, saved, and we could save lots of life if uh, Hamas understood the severity of the situation, returned the hostages without uh, conditions, and uh, went out and surrendered unconditionally. That would save a lot of lives in Gaza, and it would save, would save us the trouble of going in there and getting them. But that doesn't appear to be the state of affairs now with Hamas, which forces us to enhance our operations. IDF has stated they will fight Hamas until it and its military capabilities are completely dismantled. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Although Biden says there will be inspections to make sure the aid doesn't fall into the hands of terrorists in Gaza, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is convinced otherwise. He called it a $100 million gift to Hamas, which is still holding American hostages and is calling on his Republican rivals in the 2024 presidential race to oppose Biden's plans for Gaza funding. Senators received a closed-door classified briefing on Israel yesterday. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said afterwards that the hospital explosion in Gaza was, in his words, an errant rocket from terrorists in Gaza. He emphasized that more Senate funding is needed to support Israel. Senator Marco Rubio agreed with Schumer, saying there's a pretty good chance the war develops into a conflict on multiple fronts. 
Others, like Senator Rick Scott, questioned humanitarian aid announced for Gaza. We have 31 Americans killed. We don't know how many Americans are hostages. And we got a president that wants to give money to Gazans? Give me a break. And by the way, go look at the videos. There's pictures of these terrorists with humanitarian first aid kits. We got, there's pictures all over Israeli press about, about these uh, rice bags with bullets in it, right? So this is a humanitarian effort, right? So there's no way that Hamas doesn't get this money. This is, this is stupid. Now let's get some analysis on the expected geopolitical aftermath of the Israel-Hamas war and security aspects of the conflict more broadly. We're bringing in live on the show Andrew Thornbrook, a defense reporter for the Epic Times. Andrew, good morning. Good to have you. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So how will this conflict in the Middle East affect tensions between the U.S. and China, which is seeking to expand its influence in the global south, a region that includes many Arab nations? You know, well, there's a, a strong likelihood that the conflict is going to further erode uh, any relationship we have uh, with China. It's also going to cede influence slowly and then quickly to the Chinese Communist Party, which has been working pretty tirelessly throughout the region to uh, present itself to Arab powers as an alternative to the United States and one that is more willing to uh, actively endorse authoritarianism as well as anti-Israelism. And even back into the Mao's days, China has been pro-Palestinian. What about the Belt and Road Initiative? How is this going to affect that? Yeah, so that remains to be seen. Uh, we did, of course, have China uh, hosting a Belt and Road Initiative forum this week, uh, hosting Putin, several uh, low-level officials from uh, the Arab world. Uh, notably, however, unlike former Belt and Road Initiative uh, meetings, there were no heads of, there were very few heads of state. Most Arab heads of state remained in the region to deal with this crisis, particularly as Biden was uh, in the region. Uh, so the Belt and Road Initiative, it's it's nebulous whether or not it's going to have hard and fast gains from this or if the United States can still use its diplomatic power to press back against it in the region. Yeah, and we've heard concerns that the advancements through the Abraham Accords will be eroded based on this conflict here. You mentioned Putin, Russian President Vladimir Putin. He's seeking to garner more support for his war in Ukraine. Is the country going to use this conflict in the Middle East to get ground on that goal? Yes, uh, actually, it already is. So we've we, we've seen Moscow and Beijing join together, actually, uh, pretty early on to promote a staunchly anti-Israel stance. You had uh, both powers essentially using the initial October 7th attack to demand publicly that Israel immediately recognize a, a nation state of Palestine, uh, which is... Nothing like it, it doesn't even make sense from a diplomatic perspective that this would be a demand uh, following the terrorist attack. Uh, you, you also have several arms deals going on. A, a key player here is Iran, and Russian influence really needs to be understood through Iran. So right after the October 7th terrorist attack happened, you had Russian-linked hackers attacking websites and possibly infrastructure that's still unconfirmed. Uh, in Israel. You also have huge arms deals from Russia to Iran happening right now. So so Russia is actually dependent on uh, Iran for some munitions as well as certain drones, suicide drones, uh, for its war in Ukraine. And in exchange for these things, Russia is 
providing uh, Iran with advanced fighter jets, missiles, and radar. So it's sort of the inverse of what we see NATO doing with Ukraine, whereas, say, the Netherlands, or <clears throat> excuse me, Denmark receives F-35s from the United States. It can therefore give its F-16s to Ukraine. In this situation, Moscow gives advanced weaponry to Iran. It can then give its less advanced weaponry to Hamas, which can attack Israel. Let's delve further into this. A global economist says that the geopolitical pot is just boiling here with this conflict. The U.S. has a strategy of deterring Iran and Hezbollah while there is fear of an escalation of this conflict, too. So how do these factors affect the overall security of the region? Yeah, well, they affect it negatively. Uh, I think for a long time we've been seeing a steady uh, descent into de uh, instability. Uh, where we've been seeing destabilizing forces, particularly since we left Afghanistan. Um, and as we've become more thinly spread throughout the world. And I think there's a, a key element here at play that has not been picked up enough on by, by most of the press, which is that we are being intentionally pressed by numerous adversaries across the world. Uh, so we're being pressed in Ukraine by Russia. We're now being pressed in Israel by Iran. We'll, we've been having to support in, increasingly South Korea because of pressure from North Korea, and soon we'll have to be supporting Taiwan even more because of pressure from China. And this risks, of course, that we are less able to respond to any one crisis, much less a major crisis that might emerge. So the longer we have to be heavily supporting our allies throughout the world, the more thinly spread we're going to be and the less prepared we're going to be for a major conflict. Thank you for this very in-depth look at this. Andrew Thornbrook, National Security Correspondent for the Epic Times. Thank you so much for having me. Over 300 people were arrested while demonstrating inside a Capitol building in Washington yesterday. The protesters were calling on Israel to stop retaliating for the October 7th Hamas terrorist massacre and mass kidnapping. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the protests led by a far-left Jewish group. Protesters gathered outside the Capitol around midday. They were demanding that Congress take action to stop the fighting between Israel and the Hamas terrorist organization which governs the Gaza Strip. Palestinian flags could be seen waving in the crowd. While slogans calling for an end to war and weapons were sung. Israel has been retaliating with airstrikes in Gaza on Hamas targets after Hamas terrorists massacred Israeli civilians earlier this month. An estimated 500 protesters gained access to the interior of the building. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene posted on X about the protests before being confronted by an activist. These people are not for peace. You can tell it's the same kind of movement that started with BLM and it'll be the same kind of violent movement later on. They don't want peace. So they want, they Let want Gaza live! Let Gaza live! Let Gaza live! Green wrote on X, Watch Tlaib's aggressive insurrectionist come at me in canon today. After Hamas murdered and kidnapped innocent Israelis, this anti-Semite screams, let Gaza live, and claims I have blood on my hands. Now Biden wants to give $100 million to Gaza to fund more Hamas terrorism. Speaking of Representative Rashida Tlaib, she and Black Lives Matter activist and Congresswoman Cori Bush spoke outside before the demonstration. I shouldn't have to care 
comments about what's happening not only to my sister and her family, but to your families, to you right here in the United States, to our Palestinian sisters and brothers and neighbors here and in Gaza. The protests were announced on X by the Jewish Voice for Peace organization, which describes itself as organizing toward Palestinian liberation and Judaism beyond Zionism. The Anti-Defamation League, whose website says its timeless mission is to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all, condemned the demonstration. It called the demonstration participants far-left radical organizations that do not represent the overwhelming majority of the Jewish community. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, will the third time be the charm? Representative Jim Jordan lost again in his House Speaker bid, but a third vote is scheduled for later today. The U.S. has issued new sanctions targeting Iranian weapons programs and Hamas terror operations. It comes after increasing violence in the Middle East. Good to have you back. Congressman Jim Jordan failed again to win the Speaker's gavel in a second vote yesterday. He fared worse than he did during the first round of voting one day earlier. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the loss, which raises serious questions over whether the Ohio Republican has a viable path forward. Despite the defeat, Jordan has vowed to stay in the race. The House is expected to hold a third Speaker vote on Thursday at noon. Without a speaker, the chamber is effectively frozen, a precarious position that comes amid conflict abroad and a potential government shutdown next month. As pressure grows on Republicans to find a way out of the leadership crisis, some are pushing to expand the powers of the interim speaker, GOP Representative Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. Congressman Tim Burchett doesn't favor that push. We won't do anything up until about a day before and then start electing another speaker. So. So let's just stay here until we get it figured out. During the first round of voting on Tuesday, 20 House Republicans voted against Jordan. On Wednesday, that number rose to 22, showing that the opposition against the candidate has grown. But Representative Donald says he's sticking with his man. My support is not changing. My support is not moving. Um, Jim can go as many rounds as he chooses to, and I'll be right there with him. Jordan earlier said he was in favor of putting a resolution on the floor to empower interim Speaker McHenry. Congressman Chip Roy responded to that. Well, look, I think what Jim is doing is calling the bluff of folks that, that say that they're going to go work out a deal with Democrats. Good luck selling that back home, uh, that you're going to go cut a deal with Democrats to choose the Speaker. Congressman Troy Nels thinks people right now are just dug in. And, and how do you recover from that? How do you, so what is the path forward? Jordan remains determined to press ahead and condemned reported death threats against his detractors. Congresswoman Miller Meeks said she had received credible death threats after pulling her support from Jordan in the second vote. It never happened. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's just wrong. That's yeah. wrong. We don't want it to happen to anyone, any American, anybody, any member of Congress. It's just, it's just wrong. Democrats, meanwhile, have seized on the infighting across the aisle. They are trying to make a case for a compromise candidate backed by both parties. However, that option would mark a sharp departure from how Congress typically functions. 
Daniel Monahan, NTD News. As violence continues in the Gaza Strip, Washington is working to push through a new ambassador to Israel. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee held a confirmation hearing yesterday for President Biden's pick, Jacob Liu, and here's his testimony. At this moment, there is no greater mission than to be asked to strengthen the ties between the United States and Israel, to work toward peace in a region that has known so much war and destruction. Liu is proving to be a controversial pick among Senate Republicans. He previously served as the Treasury Secretary under the Obama administration. During his tenure, he played a crucial role in securing the Iran nuclear deal. The policy included lifting U.S. sanctions against Iran, which drew criticism from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And for that reason, some Senate Republicans are considering slowing down Liu's appointment. The U.S. hasn't had a Senate-confirmed ambassador to Israel since July when the previous one stepped down. Liu needs to earn 51 votes to secure his new job. That means that it will require all Democrats in the upper chamber to vote for him. A longtime State Department official resigned his post over White House policy on the Israel-Hamas conflict. Josh Paul was the director of Congressional and Public Affairs since 2012. In a statement on LinkedIn, he said the policy would cause deeper suffering for the people of Israel and Palestine. Paul told the Huffington Post he believes U.S. support of Israel's response to the conflict is not in the long-term interests of the United States. He condemned the Hamas attack as, quote, a monstrosity of monstrosities, but also cited concerns that Iran-linked groups would exploit the situation. Paul said he debated in the past what he called controversial arms sales, but said it was clear there was no arguing on the current Israel policy. The Biden administration announcing new sanctions targeting Iran's weapons programs. This comes as Iran is under scrutiny for backing Hamas in the war with Israel. The Treasury Department on Wednesday announced new sanctions targeting Iran's ballistic missile and drone system. They cover 20 entities that support Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the country's defense ministry in producing and spreading missiles and drones. Those sanctioned include 11 individuals, 8 entities, and one cargo vessel. Among the group are Iran-based equipment firms and their directors, Hong Kong-based tech companies, Chinese nationals, Iran's defense minister, and Iran's defense attaché in Venezuela. Those entities will be blocked from accessing any property or financial assets they might have in the U.S. The sanctions also prohibit U.S. citizens, companies, and financial institutions from engaging in certain transactions with those entities. The Treasury Department said in a statement, Iran's reckless choice to continue its proliferation of destructive UAVs and other weapons prolongs numerous conflicts in regions around the world. The new sanctions come as the United Nations restrictions on Iran's missile-related activities are set to expire. The United States also issued sanctions on the Hamas militant group yesterday. The sanctions are aimed at disrupting funding for the group that allows it to carry out its operations. Here with us live to discuss how the sanctions work is NTD business host Don Ma. Welcome back, Don. So what specifically do the sanctions target to try to stop Hamas's funding? Yeah, so, all right, the sanctions targeted uh, 10 individuals and Hamas's financial network across uh, Gaza, uh, Sudan, Turkey, Algeria, Qatar. So those targeted are members who manage a Hamas investment portfolio. 
So what's what's being targeted here? What's being sanctioned here to include a Gaza-based uh, crypto business? Uh, this business is called Buy Cash Money and Money Transfer Company. Uh, so now, according to the Treasury Department, what this company does is it provides money transfers and virtual currency exchange services. The firm has also been used by other terrorist groups as well to transfer funds and. U.S. lawmakers were also saying that Hamas was using digital assets to fund their operations. So it seems like the sanctions are an important move here. A Hamas investment portfolio. Thanks for revealing that for us, Don. What are some methods Hamas uses to gain funding? Yeah, that, that's very important here. So according to the Treasury Department, the militant group uh, partly gets its funding from Iran. Uh, no surprise there. But at the same time, its global investments uh, portfolio generates vast sums of revenue, which is estimated to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So the department says uh, that the companies in Hamas's uh, portfolio have operated under the guise of legitimate businesses. And as well, their representatives have also attempted to conceal Hamas's control over these assets. So those are some of the ways that it's getting funding. Now, let's bring things home for a moment here. Now that the administration is sanctioning Iran and Hamas, what is the reaction at the Capitol? Yeah, so some Republican lawmakers uh, say the new sanctions uh, on Hamas members are a bit too late. Uh, they blame President Biden's Iran policies for destabilizing the Middle East. Uh, now, a, a group of uh, Republican senators yesterday held a press conference to show solidarity with Israel. The senators pointed to Iran's backing of terrorist organizations in the Middle East, uh, calling Hamas an Iran proxy. Uh, they're accusing the Biden administration of implementing a policy of appeasement on Iran, uh, which they said demoralized U.S. allies in the region. So that's just an overview for you to get uh, to get a sense. Right, and a good one, a good overview as always. Uh, thank you so much, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Yeah, great to be here. And before we head into the break, we're going to bring you a few of the latest headlines. A judge has denied former President Trump's request to delay a civil lawsuit related to the January 6th Capitol breach. U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta called the request unwarranted. He also said the motion to dismiss was premature. Trump also asked the judge to dismiss his inclusion in the lawsuit entirely, citing protection under the First Amendment and immunity as president. The civil suit comes from a longtime girlfriend of an officer who died of a stroke shortly after the January 6th breach. It's been almost two decades since the disappearance of Alabama teen Natalie Holloway, who went missing during a class trip to Aruba. Now a man has confessed to killing her. Jordan Vandersloot pleaded guilty to the murder yesterday. Vandersloot was always a prime suspect in the case and was arrested many times in Aruba. However, he was always released due to a lack of evidence. Holloway's body was never found. Vandersloot's confession was part of a plea deal. The first U.S. deportation flight to Venezuela landed in Caracas yesterday. It comes as part of new Biden 
Administration initiative as the U.S. struggles with record illegal border crossings. U.S. buses dropped around 130 Venezuelan men and women at an airport in Harlingen, Texas yesterday. There were, they were ushered onto a plane and flown into Caracas. Since the Biden administration took office, around 400,000 Venezuelans were caught crossing illegally into the U.S. The Navy announced yesterday that it's sending the USS Mount Whitney to eastern Mediterranean Sea. The ship will support U.S. operations there amid the rising tensions of the Israel-Hamas conflict. It will join ships already dispatched to the region, including two aircraft carrier strike groups. The Navy says the ship has advanced communications and intelligence capabilities. And stay with us, wealthy university alumni threatening to cut funding. They say they want university leaders to take a stronger stance on the Israel-Hamas war. And are growing anti-Semitism in far-left university campuses fueling pro-Hamas protests? We bring in an expert to shed some light on this movement. Good to have you back. Continuing our coverage on the Israel-Hamas war, here at home, big money donors are cutting off funds to Ivy League universities. This in response to what they believe are pro-Hamas stances. Here's the story. In a barrage of recent backlash, billionaire alumni from Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania are closing their checkbooks. They believe college leaders are failing to take a strong stance against pro-Hamas sentiment on their campuses. At Harvard, retail billionaire Lex Wexner's foundation parted ways. And billionaire hedge fund manager Bill Ackman wanted Harvard to identify students who blamed Israel. But the University of Penn is at the center of the exits. Last week, Mark Rowan, the CEO of Apollo and a Penn alumnus, called on the university's president and the chairman of the board of trustees to resign. He also urged fellow alumni to reduce their usual donations to just one dollar. Alumnus John Huntsman Jr., the former governor of Utah and a former U.S. ambassador to China, said Penn had become deeply adrift. In a letter, Huntsman told Penn President Liz McGill, Huntsman Foundation will close its checkbook on all future giving to Penn, something that has been a source of enormous pride for now three generations of graduates. He said his three siblings joined in the rebuke. Amid the backlash, McGill issued her third statement on Wednesday. She condemned Hamas terrorist attacks, blaming them for starting the war, something she didn't say in her first statement last Tuesday. Her updated stance on the war may be too little too late, as a growing number of alumni are pulling up stakes, including billionaire Ronald Lauder of the Estee Lauder Empire and hedge fund veteran David Magerman. Magerman said in a letter that the university needed its moral foundations rebuilt from the ground up. McGill has now taken responsibility for the safety and security of the Penn community. She said in her latest statement, Penn will not tolerate and will take immediate action against any incitement to violence or, of course, actual violence. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Hamas has long been known for its history of anti-Semitism. So are we seeing a rise in anti-Semitic sentiment on campuses and why? We bring in Sharice Trump. She is the executive director of Speech First. Good morning, Sharice. Good to have you. Now, first, do you think 
what, what do you think? Do you think there is growing anti-Semitic sentiment on U.S. campuses? We've seen this kind of sentiment actually for quite a while on college campuses. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that you have an increasing number of students who associate pro -pal the pro-Palestinian movement, the anti-Israeli movement with far left kind of woke ideology. And so this is why you see more and more students clamoring to that side of things actually being hesitant of condemning Hamas, university leadership who's afraid of the woke mob being hesitant to condemn Hamas because they all know that if they don't, if they do condemn Hamas, then suddenly they're taking a pro-Israel stance and that goes against their far left ideology that specifies that you have to be anti-Western, anti, -Western, anti uh, what they deem as colonization and essentially anti-white or anti-privilege, right? So that they associate the Jewish people with some sentiment of privilege and they see them as the bad actors here, which is where this weird conflation comes in. And really all it is is evidence that there's just a serious lack of critical thought happening on college campuses. And I think we need to really address that and see what's going on. Right. Now, before we move on, can you just quickly tell me what Speech First does and how do you work together with those different campuses or those students on the campuses? Yeah, absolutely. So Speech First is a nonprofit membership organization, and we sue universities that violate the free speech rights of students. So in addition to litigation, there's obviously a lot of things people can do to support free speech on college campuses. We, we do it through legal uh, action, but additionally, you see here that donors have played a huge role, as well as board members at universities can play a significant role in impacting the positions universities takes. It's unfortunate there's not moral clarity on the part of university leadership in a lot of these scenarios, but it comes down to really who applies the most pressure on them ultimately. And that's, that is unfortunate, but that's the reality. Hmm. Now, have you been also been in touch with Jewish students? I'm wondering what they would be telling you during these times. So Jewish students are actually very fearful right now on college campuses. Now, they have been for a long time. They've, there has been a number of movements uh, throughout the past, just a couple of years ago, Pomona College, uh, their student government association unanimously passed uh, a, a resolution saying that in order to be a recognized club on campus, you actually had to support and participate in the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, political movement against Israel, which would essentially put all Jewish clubs on campus in a position where they couldn't even buy kosher food for themselves. And it was blatant discrimination against Jewish students. But that passed unanimously in the Student Government Association and the president had to step in to shut it down. There has been a history of the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement on college campuses. You can trace this back to honestly to Iranian and Qatari funding on college campuses. There is a political movement association there. Uh, these are groups, when you're looking at the student groups who lead these types of movements uh, against Jewish students, oftentimes you can trace their national organizations back to funding of Hamas and Hezbollah when you're looking at like, the Muslim Student Association, for example. So there is serious concern here for Jewish students and their safety on campus. Um, but I think that also it's just important to recognize in the United States, we have very broad free speech protections here. So, you know, as much as student, Jewish students are protected to post flyers of missing uh, citizens of Israel, m missing kidnapped um, citizens of Israel after, by Hamas, the same, you know, goes for the pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas uh, protesters. They are allowed to protest and express their viewpoints. And as unfortunate as may seem, that is the reality of the free speech laws in this country. And I think that's an interesting point that you raised, that there is Hamas-backed funding behind those movements. So thank you for mentioning that. At the same time, I want to touch on, um, you mentioned that the campuses are leaning left nowadays. Now, I think that might need a bit more context. How would you say does that tie into anti-Semitism? 
Yeah, so for, for a long time, the universities have always been more liberal, more left-leaning institutions. But historically, you actually saw respect for opposing ideas. You saw active debate, open discussion, open inquiry that really allowed ideas to flourish on college campuses. Uh, more recently, you've seen uh, more tyrannical methods taken by uh, the students as well as the university leadership and administrators through these diversity, equity, and inclusion departments where they create policies that specifically target speech that they deem controversial or basically anything that's uh, going against or divergent from uh, what their mainstream way of thinking is, sometimes even if it goes against their own political agendas, uh, and trying to restrict and censor student speech based around those concepts. So unfortunately, what has happened is you've had this kind of Marxist ideological takeover of the campuses via these types of overly encroaching policies that shut down any dissenting viewpoints. And when you ask yourself, why is there a connection here between anti-Semitism and woke ideology, you can trace it all the way back to the Soviet Union, where they specifically talked about in Soviet Russia how the Jews grease the uh, the Jewish blood greased the wheels of the machine of what would be the communist regime. And so this is uh, historically just the Jewish people have constantly been a target of this type of the far left movement. Uh, but I think it's important to note here what the connection really is, is that this uh, today amongst many students is that they believe that the ends justify the means. And even if that means violent, horrific acts that they actually they think that if this is these are all justified actions if it means that they get to uh take take out israel and they get to actually push uh palestine from the uh from the river to the sea which is what they tend to tend to chant right um also ties into again some marxist ideas that we also spoke about on the show the green red alliance so thank you so much for shedding light yeah. on this again sharice trump i appreciate your insights today absolutely thanks and on that point, even students from Georgetown and American universities are saying that they're afraid to go to school. And they're blaming the school for being silent on this anti-Semitic rhetoric. Yeah, I would say and no matter on which side you say, you know, uh, Germany, Berlin, people just recently had through Molotov cocktails a synagogue. So I think no matter what side, this is uh, alarming to hear. So Yeah, violence is not justified in that. Of course, political discourse and free speech is important on the issue, but it needs to be done in a sane manner. Right. Um, we need to move on here with uh, our break. We're heading to break and coming up is a military base hosting U.S. soldiers came under attack by drones in Iraq yesterday. It follows increasing tensions after the hospital explosion in Gaza. Violent protests have erupted in multiple cities across Europe in support of Palestine. Several cities ramped up security in light of recent threats. And Chinese leader Xi Jinping said China is willing to work with Egypt to strengthen cooperation in light of the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas. Find out what may have prompted his remarks. Welcome back and staying in the Middle East. Tensions on the rise following the explosion at the Gaza hospital. A military base in Iraq hosting U.S. troops came under attack by suicide drones yesterday. 
The Pentagon said U.S. forces in Iraq shot down three drones. In western Iraq, U.S. forces intercepted two drones, destroying one and damaging the second. There were minor injuries to coalition forces. And separately, in northern Iraq, U.S. forces intercepted and destroyed a drone with no injuries. The U.S. maintains a limited presence in Iraq. Military bases hosting U.S. and allied troops have come under fire from Iran-backed terrorists in the country several times in recent years. Pro-Palestinian protests continue to erupt across Europe. The protests quickly turned violent. Authorities in several European cities are on high alert and have ramped up security at airports and at Jewish sites. Here's Entity's Kostemanas with updates on the situation. More than half a dozen airports in France face security alerts on Wednesday. According to the local aviation authority, several more were evacuated for checks. The Palace of Versailles also closed again due to its third security scare in five days. France is on its highest alert after a schoolteacher was murdered in a suspected Islamist attack on Friday last week. And as violent pro-Palestinian protests occurred across the European continent. In Germany, Chancellor Olaf Scholz voiced outrage on Wednesday at an attack on a synagogue in Berlin. Police say two Molotov cocktails were thrown at the building. And I want to say specifically that I am also outraged. I am personally outraged that some people are shouting and doing these things, and that is an attitude that I am convinced I share with the citizens of Germany, and we stand together for the protection of our Jewish fellow citizens as well. Italy reinforced security around Jewish sites in the capital, Rome, on Wednesday. Armed military police were patrolling outside a synagogue where a ceremony was taking place. In Greece, an estimated 10,000 people took part in a demonstration on Wednesday, many waving Palestinian flags. The march was organized by left-wing groups and Palestinians in Greece. Riot police fired tear gas at protesters as they tried to advance on the Israeli embassy in Athens on Wednesday. No arrests were made and no injuries were reported. Also on Wednesday, thousands gathered outside the Israeli and U.S. consulates in Istanbul for the second day of protests. Protesters outside the Israeli consulate tried to storm the building and launched fireworks toward the consulate. Another group protested outside the U.S. consulate to denounce the U.S. support for Israel since the Hamas attack. The protests escalated after it was reported that a hospital in Gaza was struck by an Israeli rocket. Despite emerging evidence that the attack on the hospital resulted from a misfired rocket coming out of Gaza. Costa MNS, NTD News. Chinese leader Xi Jinping says he wants the Israel-Hamas war to stop as soon as possible. That's according to Chinese state media. Adding Beijing was willing to work with Arab governments for a lasting solution to the conflict. She also reportedly said that a ceasefire was imperative as soon as possible to prevent the conflict from expanding or spiraling out of control. She also said that China supports Egypt's efforts to let to let in humanitarian aid to Gaza. Xi's remarks are the first he made about the conflict after China previously showed support for Palestine. China has also been instrumental at funding terrorist group Hamas alongside Iran.
In a separate statement, she said China was willing to work with Egypt to strengthen cooperation in infrastructure, agricultural, and renewable energy. He added that he would also encourage Chinese companies to invest there. China has a long-standing history of funding infrastructure and projects in developing countries with the purpose of making the countries economically reliant on China. After the break, how can the U.S. undermine support by hostile nations for terrorist organizations? An advocate for free markets in the energy sector has a solution for us when we come back. Welcome back. How has the Biden administration's policies toward fossil fuels and green energy impacted the support for terrorist organizations? We explore this question with Steve Moore, the co-founder of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. I spoke with him earlier. Take a look. Steve Moore, thanks for joining us. Let's get right into it. How much of an impact would boosting domestic oil production in the U.S. have on reducing terrorist activity like the attack from Hamas that we saw in Israel? Good to be with you. Well, I think there's really two impacts. There is one impact just on the domestic U.S. economy. But the other negative factor that people weren't paying close enough attention to was the fact that when we produce less oil here at home, it means that other countries make up the difference. And Iran, of course, is a major one, and so is Russia. And so we played into the hands of our enemies and really helped fund both Vladimir Putin's war machine and the terrorists uh, that have uh, attacked uh, Israel with our, I think, really foolish energy policy here at home. Well, it's no secret that Iran funds and backs Hamas. For example, the leader of Hamas said last year that $70 million came from Iran. And of course, they are a major oil producing country. So how much yeah. would the United States need to produce in order to offset this effect? Well, if we got back to just producing as much as we would be if we'd stayed on the Trump trend line. Remember, when Trump left office, we were completely energy independent. We didn't have to import any oil from other countries on that. In fact, we were a seller of oil, not a buyer of oil. So I believe that one of the major ways that Hamas and Hezbollah and other terrorist groups have been funded is with petrodollars. And by the way, everyone knows that. That's been the case for 50 years. And so exactly how much we don't know. I couldn't really say. I will tell you this, though, that uh, if you look at the increase in Iran's oil exports since Trump left office, you're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 40 billion dollars a year of money that uh, Iran and other terrorist country uh, terrorist sponsoring countries have received in, in oil dollars. Just to clarify something, Steve, here, the net independence, that is just that we were a net exporter, but we did still receive ex exports coming into this country of oil at that time. So in independence, yeah. it's a matter of semantics there. That's right. In other words, we, we did have some imports. We did import some oil, but we were exporting more than we were importing. Right. And so will a push for green energy in the long run prevent these hostile nations from gaining an advantage financially to back these terrorist groups? No, no, because the world's more using more oil and gas than ever before. In 2023, oil uh, production and oil consumption were higher than ever. So the world, the only country that's moving away from, uh, you know, producing oil is the United States. Everyone else is producing as much as they can. And consumption, and especially in Asian and, and African countries, are uh, is as high as it's ever been. So it's a fallacy to think that the world is going to move away from fossil fuels. Only the United States uh, White House believes that. 
and of course the Department of the Interior is pushing for green energy, solar panels, what have you, in order to advance their climate goals, which some would question whether or not a few degrees warmer of an earth would be a problem, more CO2 could lead to more crop yields, and also for higher paying union jobs. So that's their motivation. But just in closing, just a brief sentence here, well, what on. needs to be done? But let me just make one quick point. You said one or two degrees. That would make a big difference, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about if we did all of the green energy projects and moved away from fossil fuels, at best that might change the temperature of the planet over the next 50 years by point, point 0.1 degree, not one or two degrees. So the, the, it's not, it's going to have a de minimis impact on the, on the climate uh, and the temperatures of the planet. Right, and something else that we know is that China produces more greenhouse emissions than all of the other developed nations in the world, so it would undermine those yeah. goals just right from the get-go. Steve Moore, right. co-founder of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, it was great speaking with you. Thank you. Very good and eye-opening, um, insightful interview, Kevin. Yeah, and he makes a good point because some say that sanctioning Iran and reducing their exports is one way to go, but that is going to get a lot of pushback because it's just going to rise prices for Western markets. So actually increasing our own production is one viable avenue. Right, um, and we are hitting 8 a.m. right now, so the second part of our broadcast starts now. President Biden has announced $100 million in humanitarian aid to Gaza, but many are asking, will it get to the Palestinians who need it? Meanwhile, Congressman Jim Jordan struck out in another attempt to become House Speaker, and one representative says she got death threats after pulling her support for Jordan. NTD asks IDF spokesman Jonathan Conricus about the chances of U.S. aid falling into the hands of Hamas and find out what challenges IDF faces in its early stages of war. Is Israel's counteroffensive morally and legally justified? Are calls for ceasefire between Hamas's complete, before Hamas's complete destruction productive or not? We get some answers from the editor-in-chief of Jewish News Syndicate. Competing narratives surrounding the hospital in Gaza, the fog of war clouds reports of widespread casualties. We hear a counterterrorism analyst's perspective going against the mainstream narrative. Good morning to those of you just joining us. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning from me. Also, I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is again Thursday, October 19th, and we want to go on to our top news now with President Biden vowing unwavering support for Israel and denouncing $100 million to Gaza on humanitarian grounds yesterday. Some are now questioning where the money will end up. Israel has vowed to destroy any aid that makes it through to Hamas, and Biden says USAID to Gaza will end if it happens. We asked David Wormser, a senior analyst for the Middle East Affairs, for his take on the situation. We really don't. And we know that Hamas has used every humanitarian assistance to arm itself. Even when, when pipes, uh, water pipes, were sent to bring water to Gaza, they dug them up and they cut them up and they used them as missile fuselages. So uh, there's no way of knowing that it won't be misused. But I'm not sure the Israelis are that worried about it because I think they really intend to go all the way with Hamas and Gaza right now. So I don't think they think there's a long-term threat in that. 
Although Biden says there will be inspections to make sure the aid doesn't fall into the hands of terrorists in Gaza, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is convinced otherwise. He called it a $100 billion gift to Hamas, which is still holding American hostages, and is calling on his Republican rivals in the 2024 presidential race to oppose Biden's plans for Gaza funding. An NTD spoke with Israel Defense Forces spokesman Jonathan Conriquez to learn more about the IDF's position. The $100 million in humanitarian aid for Gaza announced by the U.S. Wednesday is intended to provide food, water, medical support, and other basic needs to Palestinians displaced or afflicted by the war. IDF spokesperson Jonathan Conriquez told NTD he's very skeptical it won't end up with Hamas due to a history of the terrorist group abusing civilian humanitarian aid. Hamas knows no boundaries and it uses everything for its military purposes. Uh, we have said if this aid will go to Hamas, if Hamas will take it like they stole fuel from a UN facility a few days ago, and that was reported by the UN, if that happens, we'll destroy it because we are not going to allow sustenance and the enhancement of military capabilities for our enemy. Hamas claims to be currently holding nearly 200 hostages. 50 have reportedly been taken by other Palestinian terror groups. The IDF says it's their duty to bring them home and is collecting intelligence and planning to make it happen. We aspire for a short, swift and decisive war with the least amount of casualties in Israel for our troops, but also uh, for civilians suffering in Gaza. They are not our enemy. So the faster and swifter that we can do it, the better. Uh, this could all be, of course, saved and we could save lots of lives if uh, Hamas understood the severity of the situation, returned the hostages without uh, conditions, and uh, went out and surrendered unconditionally. That would save a lot of lives in Gaza, and it would save, would save us the trouble of going in there and getting them. But that doesn't appear to be the state of affairs now with Hamas, which forces us to enhance our operations. IDF has stated they will fight Hamas until it and its military capabilities are completely dismantled. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And just to be clear, Governor DeSantis is calling that a $100 million gift to Hamas. And now for some more updates on the conflict in the Middle East and a look at the moral and legal grounds of Israel's swift retaliation. We're joined live by Jonathan Tobin, the editor-in-chief of Jewish News Syndicate. Good morning, Jonathan. Thank you for coming on the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Is Israel's counteroffensive morally and legally justified? It couldn't be more moral. Um, in fact, opposition to an effort to root out terrorists who committed brutal, just unspeakable crimes last week, and the worst um, mass killing of Jews since the Holocaust. Israel doesn't just have a right to go after them. Israel has a duty to go after them. Um, after all, let's remember, when the United States was attacked on 9-11, uh, we went to the other side of the world to take out the terrorist camp of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Uh, the moral equivalent for Israel is right next door, where they also shoot rockets into Israeli territory. So they have no choice but to go after them. They've tried to live with them. For 16 years, Hamas has ruled Gaza as an independent Palestinian state in all but name, as an Islamist tyranny. Um, and Israel tried to uh, have a policy of uh, coexistence. We stay on your side of the fence, we'll stay on ours. We saw last week that doesn't work. So the only alternative now is to go in there, take them out, 
remove Hamas completely and its power to inflict horror uh, on both Israelis and uh, the local population who don't support them, although they do have wide support. And that, that is the obligation of any sovereign, decent nation. And Jonathan, let's keep in mind that Israel's stern retribution to Hamas comes in the context of Hamas's charter, saying that they call for an unrestrained and unceasing holy war to achieve its goal of the complete destruction of Israel. So are calls for a ceasefire before Hamas's complete destruction productive or not? Well, you're absolutely right. Hamas has but one purpose. It is to destroy Israel, not to change its borders, not to adjust its policies, not to create some sort of compromise solution. Hamas wants the end of Israel. It considers all of Israel occupied territory, even the parts that were internationally recognized before 1967. So, you know, they're, they're, you know it is an all-out war. Um, to call for a ceasefire now would mean letting them get away with one of the worst crimes in recent history and to in, encourage them to continue this. Um, it's not a humanitarian effort to save lives. Leaving Hamas in power means that more lives and more blood will be shed. And that can't happen. That is a fundamentally immoral position. And those who are championing this are, you know, it's, it's, it's disingenuous. Their goal, like Hamas, including some of the uh, radical far left-wing Jews who showed up at uh, the Capitol yesterday, they're opposed to the existence of Israel. They don't represent, you know, anything but a small splinter of American Jews. But, you know, in this way, they are part of the pro-Hamas caucus. Anybody who's for a ceasefire now is defending Hamas. It's as simple as that. And running alongside Hamas's violent tactics, they also call for the reinforcement of historical anti-Semitic tropes. So do we see any pressure from the U.S. to halt Israel's counterattack? And if so, would that affect U.S. interests? Well, I think um, President Biden is kind of, um, he, he's gone much further towards Israel than I think many of us suspected. His policies have helped set this in motion, his appeasement of Iran, his attempt to involve the Palestinians in uh, negotiations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. That all set the stage for this, this disaster. But since then, his statements have been great. His solidarity visit was very, uh, you know, his statement was very strong. I can't really criticize it. At the same time, it's clear uh, the administration is trying to have it both ways. It's a humanitarian corridor and uh, throwing humanitarian aid into Gaza right now. That's, that is just a gift to Hamas. It's not going to go to ordinary Palestinians in need any more than the billions that the West has poured into Gaza until now went to anything other but to strengthening Hamas's military infrastructure. So that's a mistake by the by the United States. But it would be a greater mistake if it tried to stop Israel's counteroffensive once it gets going. You know, everybody, Israel is very popular as long as uh, it's just a matter of uh, Jewish victims. Once Israel starts defending itself actively, we know it's going to be judged by a double standard. People are going to believe lies like the false claim, the fake news about it attacking a hospital when it was a Palestinian missile that blew up there. Um, you know, we know how this goes. We've seen this movie before. Um, it remains to be seen. Biden was very good at demonstrating empathy for Israel, and I, I applaud him for that. 
But in the coming days and weeks, when this tough job of rooting out Hamas is undertaken, he's going to have to show a lot more courage and steadfastness than he showed uh, in the three years up until now that he's been president. Excellent analysis from you, Jonathan Tobin, the editor-in-chief of the Jewish News Syndicate. Thank you. Thank you. Interesting um, view on this. And, um, you know, Hamas and the forces backing them, it will be no surprise, but they're, of course, saying the opposite. Conriquez, in his interview yesterday, was saying that, of course, it's not entirely possible to avoid casualties, like in every war, but they're trying. Yeah, and the U.S. has shown ironclad support for one of its key allies, Israel, of course, sending to, you know car carrier groups there to the region as well as readying their special forces. So, yeah, and, then, and of course, visiting the region and actually being there in a war zone, which is, you know, very serious show of support. Right. Um, moving on, we're going to the White House, which confirmed that President Biden will deliver a primetime foreign policy speech tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said the speech would address the Hamas terrorist attacks and Russia's ongoing war with Ukraine. Stay with us. Representative Jim Jordan failed to win the House Speaker's gavel once again. Another round of voting is set to take place later today. We have the latest on what lawmakers are saying. A deadly Israeli airstrike on a crowded hospital or a misfire terrorist rocket hitting a parking lot at night. We hear from an analyst about the need to sort through information amid the fog of war. Good to have you back. Congressman Jim Jordan failed again to win the speaker's gavel in a second vote yesterday. He fared worse than he did during the first round of voting one day earlier. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the loss, which raises serious questions over whether the Ohio Republican has a viable path forward. Despite the defeat, Jordan has vowed to stay in the race. The House is expected to hold a third speaker vote on Thursday at noon. Without a speaker, the chamber is effectively frozen, a precarious position that comes amid conflict abroad and a potential government shutdown next month. As pressure grows on Republicans to find a way out of the leadership crisis, some are pushing to expand the powers of the interim speaker, GOP Representative Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. Congressman Tim Burchett doesn't favor that push. We won't do anything up until about a day before and then start electing another speaker. So. So let's just stay here until we get it figured out. During the first round of voting on Tuesday, 20 House Republicans voted against Jordan. On Wednesday, that number rose to 22, showing that the opposition against the candidate has grown. Jordan remains determined to press ahead and condemned reported death threats against his detractors. Congresswoman Miller Meeks said she had received credible death threats after pulling her support from Jordan in the second vote. It never happened. Democrats, meanwhile, have seized on the infighting across the aisle. They are trying to make a case for a compromise candidate backed by both parties. However, that option would mark a sharp departure from how Congress typically functions. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The United States also issued sanctions on the Hamas terrorist group yesterday, aimed at disrupting funding for its operations. 
We spoke to Don Ma, host of Entity Business, to discuss how the sanctions work. So what specifically do the sanctions target to try to stop Hamas's funding? Yeah, so, all right, the sanctions targeted uh, 10 individuals at Hamas's financial network across uh, Gaza, uh, Sudan, Turkey, Algeria, Qatar. So those targeted are members who manage a Hamas investment portfolio. So what's, what's being targeted here? What's being sanctioned here to include a Gaza-based uh, crypto business? Uh, this business is called Buy Cash Money and Money Transfer Company. Uh, so now, according to the Treasury Department, what this company does is it provides money transfers and virtual currency exchange services. The firm has also been used by other terrorist groups as well to transfer funds. And U.S. lawmakers were also saying that Hamas was using digital assets to fund their operations. So it seems like the sanctions are an important move here. Hamas investment portfolio. Thanks for revealing that for us, Don. What are some methods Hamas uses to gain funding? Yeah, th that's very important here. So according to the Treasury Department, the militant group uh, partly gets its funding from Iran. Uh, no surprise there. But at the same time, its global investments uh, portfolio generates vast sums of revenue, which is estimated to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So the department says uh, that the companies in Hamas's uh, portfolio have operated under the guise of legitimate businesses. And as well, their representatives have also attempted to conceal Hamas's control over these assets. So th those are some of the ways that it's getting funding. What is the importance of the media front of the Israel-Hamas war? While some news outlets report the situation at the Gaza hospital was a deliberate attack, evidence is showing that it is a result of a misfired terrorist rocket. Here for some discussion on this is Kyle Scheidler, the Director and Senior Analyst for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism at the Center for Security Policy. Kyle Scheidler, thanks for joining us. How important is the digital front in the Israel-Hamas war? I mean, it's absolutely vital. Uh, you have to understand that for terrorism to be successful, the propaganda angle has to work. Uh, terrorism is ultimately always about uh, impacting the political space, not necessarily achieving uh, strategic outcomes on the ground. So Hamas needs to win in the digital space uh, if they are to be successful. Are they winning in the digital space? I think it's possible. I will say that the Israelis are doing a better job than I have seen them do in countering Hamas propaganda and misinformation. Uh, they are being very responsive. They are getting information out that is accurate uh, and well-sourced faster than I've seen them do it in the past. Is it fast enough? I'm not sure. Uh, time will tell. If you take a look, for example, at this situation with the uh, alleged attack on the hospital last night. Uh, or the other night, what we saw was uh, people, including mainstream media outlets, rushing to judgment uh, as to what happened, claiming that it was a Israeli airstrike. Uh, and in the light of day, what we find is uh, the attack actually didn't hit a hospital at all. It seems to have struck a parking lot near the hospital. Uh, and the, the casualties announced by Hamas uh, seem highly unlikely. Uh, simply because you don't have 500 people standing in a parking lot in the middle of the night. So 
I would urge uh, your viewers to take the time to wait for more information. Uh, if you are being demanded to make a judgment right away, um, very often the person who's demanding you take a stand without better information uh, is trying to mislead you. So Kyle, how should viewers treat the images that they see of bloodied people at the hospital and so forth? One of the things that we have to remember is that when we're when we see mainstream media reporting on what happens in Gaza, Hamas has complete control over Gaza. Hamas is the government of Gaza. So when they make reference to uh, the Gaza Ministry of Health or some other um, ministry or government entity as though it's some kind of neutral or respectable entity, you need to remember that that entity is Hamas and you are getting the Hamas propaganda line uh, from that entity. And all too often, uh, mainstream media outlets are ignoring uh, that reality. Very often, you'll see pictures pop up from, uh, you know, Twitter accounts or Telegram accounts that have no followers that uh, have no basis for the information that they claim to have. So I would urge people to be very skeptical, skeptical in those kinds of cases. That is good advice, considering especially that Hamas's military wing's telegram channel, their following has since tripled since the attack. So how can Americans be sure to avoid consuming propaganda? It's almost impossible to avoid consuming propaganda uh, in the 21st century, especially if you're a user of digital media or social media. You are going to be assaulted uh, almost 24-7 with propaganda from someone. But you, you have to be skeptical in how you approach the information that you receive. Uh, you should look for credible sources. If a source has provided good information before, uh, maybe it's worth going to that source again. If this is a new source you've never seen before, uh, or it's a source that has repeatedly put out bad data, uh, maybe you don't trust it right away the first time. It's great hearing your analysis. Kyla Scheidler, Director at the Center for Security Policy, thank you. My pleasure. I think you made a very good point to always remember who the information is coming from when they're citing the ministry and the government. Um, at the same time, to say, uh, to again cite something from the interview with Conriquez that was covered a lot of ground. Um, Conriquez claimed that they are expected to provide lots of evidence for all the claims they're making. And he said that he hopes that uh, the Hamas will be held to uh, the same standards, which apparently right now it is not necessarily the case. Yeah, and the IDF is now producing evidence that there were projectiles consistent with those that the terrorists use at the blast site. Mm, right. Well, uh, we have to wrap up our show now, so we'll keep you updated with the latest information on the war. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.